blue line leaves it. Kale McCarr winds, fires, score! Now Rubido, top of the near circle, pass far side, wide open net. What a save made by Philip Grubauer. Just outstanding stuff. I am Grub. And Zadorov oh. smash! <laughs> oh my goodness! Yep. What a bone-crushing hit by Nikita Zadorov. And Howard Luck has no idea what day it is, what time zone he's in, and he is slowly making his way towards the bench. Hello everyone out there in Avalanche land and welcome into another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to Avalanche podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top rated sportsbook app. I am your host JJ Jerez. With me of course is Arif Dean. We're here to kind of review the craziness that was week one of free agency. I mean there's still some moves and everything like that to, to come but uh, you know, the Avalanche made a big move, so we have to come to break that down, don't we, Arif? So, you know, we talked last episode about how great Brandon Saad played with Taves. Well, the Avalanche went out there and got a Taves of their own, didn't they? Yeah, I remember a few years ago, the Blackhawks wanted to reunite Saad with Taves, so they traded Panarin to do that. And uh, just three years later, Joe Sackick went out and traded two second-round draft picks to do exactly what the Blackhawks needed to do by trading Panarin. So I call that a win in my books. And I think it's great that we are on week two or almost on week two of free agency. And we're talking about the second big move by Joe Sackick that isn't even in free agency. And that's, of course, the acquisition of Devon Taves, a new stud, I would say, to the defensive lineup. It's funny that he gave up second rounders, not that two of them, after this year not having a second rounder. It seems that Joe Sackick suddenly just finds zero value in the second round draft pick. You know what it is? It's, he was listening to our podcast episode the other day where I kept breaking down the fact that the Avalanche just don't have much value in their picks outside of the first round. And he said, you know what? Yeah, those guys on the podcast are absolutely correct. I'm out here drafting Nicholas Malouche and trading him for Anton Bebo. I'm out here drafting AJ Greer and trading him for some AHL guy named Kyle Burrows. Why am I wasting these draft picks? I drafted Con uh, Chris Bigra, and that led to nothing, obviously, the acquisition of Ryan Graves. So why why waste these draft picks on players that are not developing? These guys have a good point. Let's go out and trade them for valued NHL players. And that's what he did. He got rid of another two. He got rid of last year's in the Burakovsky deal, and the Avalanche suddenly have another stud defenseman on their hands. Yeah, so let's break down Devon Taves' game a little bit. I mean, he's not exactly a miraculous addition, but what he is is a really great fit, especially when it comes to Jared Bednar's system. I just think he's going to be an, an awesome fit in the lineup, and, and for a couple reasons. I mean, he's not afraid to lead the rush, which I think is something very fitting for a an avalanche defenseman right now. He's not afraid to go coast to coast and he's not afraid to play kind of below the hash marks and be that F1 guy. He's got that speed to him and he's got that that tenacity and that aggressive play that you that Jared Bednar and we all like to see from the Avs defenseman. And for whatever reason he's built this career over 2 years on the on on Long Island or at Brooklyn's uh, arena or in Brooklyn or whatever the hell they're playing nowadays but he's built this career over the last two years where he's been one of the more underappreciated and underrated defensemen he sort of flies under the radar with everything he does and what he does is he plays over 20 minutes a night on a Lou Lamorello hockey team and a Barry Trotz hockey team uh, playing top four minutes quarterbacking the top power play um, and just flying under the radar as one of these guys who was 
ultimately a top pair defenseman. That's what the Avalanche traded for. They didn't trade for a number one defenseman, but they traded for a top pair guy who's able to play offensively, play defensively. He's got speed. He's got the confidence to join the rush, like you were saying, and he's got the ability to get the puck out of his zone uh, with a clean exit, something that the previous guy that was on the team, Nikita Zadorov, had a lot of trouble with. So he just fits right up the alley of what the Avalanche do. And I I still can't find many reasons why this isn't a good addition for the Avs. Right. I, that last point you make, I think that's what makes him... Uh, that's, that's the main reason that he's a great addition for this team is that outlet pass, right? When he gets the puck on his stick, you'll see him skating around, playing defense, playing defense. Then he'll either intercept a pass or poke check it away. Once he gets that puck on his stick, immediately his head up is up and look into the far blue line to see what kind of a stretch pass he can create. And that's exactly what the Avalanche need. That's the exact kind of offense they try to run and again that's something Nikita Zadorov didn't really do another thing that he does that I think puts him above Zadorov and makes him a phenomenal replacement is the way he can score from the point what we saw from Zadorov he kind of struggled from the point if he couldn't do his full windup well what you see from Devon Taves he doesn't like to use a full windup you rarely see him lift his stick up past his knees and a lot of times he'll even unleash a, a wrist shot and I think that's something that the avalanche worked on with Zadorov for a really long time and finally said all right this guy just can't seem to figure out how to create an a aggressive a dangerous shot from the blue line meanwhile you look across at, at the east Eastern Conference and Devon Taves kind of plays that perfectly. I think their scouting and their um, attention to finding a perfect defenseman for this lineup was on point in this in this transaction. You know, before I add to that statement, isn't it funny that? And I'm gonna go a little off topic here. Every single time Nikita Zadorov would score one of those goals where he would blast it from the blue line, he was surprised. His teammates were surprised. The opponent was surprised. Eighteen thousand. It always seemed like everybody was like holy shit, it went in. And that's kind of the feeling you had with him because he was just so inconsistent with that, with getting the puck through. But, you know, we're not here to sit here and rail on Zadorov or trash on him. I'm, you know, I'm going to miss him. He's a heck of a dude. But uh, the Devon Taves acquisition is, it's another one of those moves where while everybody is sitting here, and I wrote about this today, while everybody's sitting here talking about Joe Sackick being in on Taylor Hall, or adding Tory Krug, or inquiring about Petrangelo, or maybe TJ Brody, maybe Travis Hammond, maybe all of these free agents out there. While everybody's doing that, Sackick's playing chess, and he's thinking of the guys that completely fly under the radar. When the Avalanche acquired Nazem Kadri, that was out of the blue. Burakovsky not so much, because the Avalanche were interested in him at the deadline that year. And then he goes out and trades for Devon Taves completely. Like that to me was the kind of surprising that when they said Taylor Hall signed in Buffalo, I was like, whoa, that's the same kind of surprising feeling I got. And it was one of those things where I was like, who, wait, what? And then it hit me for a second. And then I was like, this is a great addition. This is the exact type of guy that Joe Sackick would go for. And to me, the fact that he's been able to acquire somebody like that, along with the side trade, along with Burakovsky and Kadri, without giving up any big-name prospects or first-round draft picks is is why Super Joe is just doing an excellent job at his position. Um, yeah, more to your point, I think, you know, a lot of people uh, at the time of the Devon Taves acquisition, a lot of people were kind of focused on Nate Schmidt and Vegas, right? Well, obviously, he was kind of too high-priced for the abs to fit in the cap. So, meanwhile, everybody's looking at the sparkly Nate Schmidt, 
Joe Sackick's, you know, kind of looking the other way and getting a guy like uh, Devon Taves. But you mentioned a little bit ago how you think that he's really an underrated guy, and a lot of people kind of view him as so. Do you think that's because he played under Barry Trotch, which is already a defensive-friendly system, or why Why do you think he gets that rap? I think he gets that rap because the Islanders are ultimately a team of a bunch of, let's call them nobodies, and Matthew Barzal. Uh, the problem with that statement is they're not nobodies. When you look at the Islanders' top four defense, you have Ryan Pulak, you have Adam Pelek, you have uh, Devon Taves, and I want to say Nicoletti's number four. Um, yeah, Nicoletti. So those are your top four on the island, and those aren't really recognizable household names. And for Devon's case, he's 26 years old. He just broke into the NHL two years ago. He's played a little over 140-something games. Um, and again, he's, he's 26. It took him a while to make it, but for whatever reason, when he made it, he just, it worked. It kind of was like Ryan Graves. It kind of was like when the Avalanche signed Nick Holden. This fr finally, the first time he got his opportunity, it just fit. It just worked. And for somebody like that to come to the Avalanche, so this is the cool thing about the Devon Taves acquisition. It reminds me of when the Avalanche went out and got Jan Haida. It reminds me of when they went out and got Francois Beauchemin. And the first year that Haida had and the first year Beauchemin had with the Avalanche were both pretty damn good years. But the problem with both those guys where the Avalanche went out and acquired somebody on the back end of, of 30 years old, on the back end of his career, the first year was great and you're hoping it sort of carries over and then it doesn't carry over and suddenly you have this old guy making three to four million, eating up your cap space and a roster spot. Taves is going to be that except he's 26, except he's early on in his career and he's going to be the type of player kind of like what Mark Mathot was for Eric Carlson for all those years. Devon Taves is likely going to be that for the Avalanche. He's going to be that safe and sound defensive guy who can pitch in offensively, but he's just going to be a very good all-around defenseman right in the prime of his career and he's going to be here for a long time and that's what makes this acquisition better for the Avs than anything they've done in the past. Um is the fact that he's a player that isn't going to be here for one or two years. He's likely going to be a good player for the next five or so years. Earlier, you called him a first-pairing defenseman. Well, we already know that it, with this team, there was already a first-pairing, and they worked out great in Ryan Graves and Kale McCarr. So I guess, where do you see Devon Taves sliding in in the lineup, and where does he fit? Maybe where does he go to start the season, and where do you see him ultimately being by the end of it? So the Avalanche have a good problem right now. Because they have a top four defense of of, of Makar and Graves and Johnson and Gerard, uh, and then they had a third pair of Cole and Zadorov. Any way you looked at that lineup, it always made sense that Zadorov and Cole were the fifth and sixth best defensemen on this team. Well, now the way the Avalanche's defense is looking, you have five guys that are top four capable, and then you have Ian Cole, who's clearly the number six guy, and he's sort of well behind them. Basically, what I'm getting at is Devin Taves is not a sure thing to sit there on the third pair and play with Zador and play with Ian Cole all year in that Zadorov spot. I can see a I can see an opportunity where Devon Taves takes over Ryan Graves' position and is suddenly your top pair guy playing alongside Kel McCarr. I could see a situation where Eric Johnson starts to slow down just a little bit where your second pair is Taves playing with Gerard. Granted, Taves is also a lefty. So you suddenly have this guy who's going to push and he's going to sit there and he's going to want a bigger role in the lineup. And if you ask me right now off the bat, I don't know if it'll be like this opening night. Maybe it will be. 
But I think by the end of the season and by the time the season picks up and you get to games 20, 25, 30, Taves is going to be playing with Makar on that top pair. And Ryan Graves is going to be on the third pair playing with Ian Cole and playing heavy penalty kill minutes, something that Taves does not do. That's pretty interesting because, you know, with the Bo Byram and Connor Timmins situation, I mean, I feel like you're going to have to use those guys interchangeably, right? You're either going to have one yeah. in the lineup or the other. So, um, you know, that's really going to create a curveball, I think. And you're going to have to kind of juggle those lines until you find something that fits because I just right now, nothing, no exact combination makes too much sense in my head other than the Ryan Graves and Kale McCarr combo so you've got a lot to juggle there and a lot that has yet to be seen I think a lot is going to be judged in training camp that's with both the two young guys and where Devon Taves ultimately slides in so um, I think a lot of that's going to be determined in in training camp and and honestly Joe Sackick and Jared Bednar nobody has any clue right now because I certainly don't yeah, and, and the cool thing about what the Avalanche have right now is they have depth and they have options. And I hope that we don't sit here, you know, in a few months and deal with the injuries that see the injuries that the Avalanche dealt with against Dallas and suddenly wonder where is the depth. Um, Byram and Timmins, I think they will be full time NHLers the year after this upcoming season. And I say that because we're heading into a season right now where there is going to be an expansion draft. That's something that a lot of people are forgetting about is the fact that in 12 months, well, in less than at some point, because nobody knows when the hell this next offseason is going to be. But at some point after this upcoming season, assuming this upcoming season happens, uh, the Seattle Kraken are going to draft somebody from the avalanche. Now, here's the question that we, we always had going into the season was, is Eric Johnson willing to waive his no trade? and his no move so that the avalanche can protect Makar, Gerard, and Zadorov. And then this season started and Ryan Graves picked up and became the player he was. And then the question became, is Johnson going to wave so the avalanche could protect Makar, Gerard, and Graves? Now the question for me, in my opinion, especially considering the assets the avalanche just moved out to acquire him, is Eric Johnson willing to wave so that the avalanche can protect Makar, Gerard, and Devon Taves. That would leave Ryan Graves exposed, that would leave Eric Johnson exposed, and then probably a forward of the of the likes of Donskoy. So if you're the Avalanche, you're likely going to use, lose a Donskoy or a Graves. Um, I'm going to assume that the Avalanche have kind of already had a conversation with Eric Johnson about waving, because I just don't see Sackett going out trading two second round draft picks for, Devin, for Devon Taves, knowing that there's a possibility that the Avalanche cannot protect him and if he's the one that's available and exposed, there's no doubt in my mind Seattle takes him. Granted, that is a conversation for later, but basically what I'm trying to get at is let's assume the Avalanche were to lose Ryan Graves in that expansion draft. I mean, if you're the Avs, you ideally would like to lose Donskoy, but let's pretend it's Ryan Graves. You lose Ryan Graves. Ian Cole is suddenly a free agent. That opens up two roster spots. You got Connor Timmins. You got Bowen Byram. You got Gerard, McCarr, Johnson and Taves, suddenly you have a top six for the season after. So T Timmins and Byram, this acquisition doesn't necessarily get in their way and hold them off from becoming NHLers. Rather, it just gives the Avalanche another season of being patient with them. Uh, and it's great because this season, nobody knows how many games, how quick it's going to be. 48, 56, 60 games, 82 games, uh, four games in a week, five games in a week. We just don't know what's going to happen this year. And I think it's better that we don't throw a rookie into that situation. And I think the Avalanche think that too. 
Yeah, I like that assessment. And, you know, the expansion draft is honestly something you and I have neglected to really touch on. But you could tell that this free agency and this offseason, it was really something considered by all teams. And, you know, I like your breakdown there. And in my perspective, if we see an Eric Johnson that we saw this playoffs and maybe even just before, I don't think I have any worry that Seattle's going to take, take him. If anything, you leave him exposed and hope and pray that the, he's the one that gets taken. And with Ryan Graves, yeah, I like him. He's been a great fit, and what he's done uh, in his short time here has been great, but I don't think it's been so exceptional that he is not replaceable. I think he's a guy that you can find almost anywhere. You just need a little bit of size and, and a little bit of smarts. It's not like he brings anything above and beyond anywhere on the ice, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it was refreshing. It was refreshing for him to have the season that he had because the Avs just don't have those types of years from defensemen. They kind of had it from Nick Holden in 2014, but that's about it. He's not a homegrown talent, Ryan Graves, um, but he's also someone that sort of came out of nowhere, became a top six defenseman, and looks to looks to me like he's going to have a long career in the NHL, uh, similar to Nick Holden, who you know, even though he sort of t- tailed off after that 2014 year. He's still somehow a full-time NHLer. He's playing on Vegas's blue line, and he's he's made a career out of an opportunity that Patrick Waugh gave him six, seven years ago. Well, seven years ago now. And that's kind of what I liked about Ryan Graves. But at the same time, like you said, he's not the kind of player where you cannot replace him. He's not that type of a guy. Someone like Makar, yeah. Someone like Gerard, we can argue, yeah, that's a very unique talent. But, but Ryan Graves is an interchangeable player. You know, the Avalanche could have traded Ryan Graves, probably went out and signed Travis Hamanick and had a similar player granted with a, with with a smaller size and a smaller frame. Uh but with Devon Taves, I just feel like it's such a unique and great acquisition because he's going to provide the Avalanche with stability in that top four, something that we just don't know if Ryan Graves is going to be that for for a long time or if this was just a one or two year stint of him being this good. Yeah, not to mention you bring up the point of the injuries, which is always something you got to keep an eye out, especially like yeah. you said, you don't know what this season's going to look like. So if you're suddenly playing every other night and very little breaks, that's definitely higher risk for injury. So just something you need to keep in mind. But don't speak it into existence, Era. If you're you're almost talking about it like it's a sure thing, let's not jinx it here, right? This team's going to be healthy this year, and they're gonna you know, they're gonna fly into the playoffs just a hundred percent. They're gonna health. literally go forty seven zero and one if they're healthy this year. That's how good this team is. No, but I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned the expansion draft thing. Uh, the Eric Johnson situation it is it is fascinating to me because. I don't think the Avalanche can convince him to waive his no trade unless it's with the assumption of Eric Wave and Seattle is not going to take you. I don't think Seattle will take him either. I think I think the other options on this team are just far more enticing being guys like Giannis Donskoy, Ryan Graves, or Devon Taves, depending on whichever one is, is exposed, which I assume will be Graves at this point. Graves or Donskoy are just far too enticing of a piece and possibly even Tyson Jost once he eventually gets re-signed. They're far too enticing of a piece to take an older guy like Eric Johnson. Um you can pick up somebody like an Eric Johnson, a veteran guy, to sort of lead the locker room on a team that doesn't have many other options. But on the Avalanche, I just can't see him going, and that's kind of what you hope for if you're Joe Sackett because that's the only way you can convince him. It's You're not convincing him to wave to leave. He doesn't want to leave. He signed that deal, and he added that clause into his contract for a reason. You're convincing him to wave to say, take one for the team so that we can lose somebody else uh, and and keep you on board rather than losing a better player. It's it's the Dion Phaneuf and Ottawa situation all over again. 
Right, you're dangling a rotten carrot for him. Rather exactly. Than a scrumptious looking one, right? Well, Devon Taves is heading to arbitration. Might be a big real big reason that New York was willing to kind of give him away for, for such a deal. Um, let's look ahead at that arbitration, which is set for Halloween night, October 31st. What kind of deal do you spooky. think? Spooky. <laughs> I love saying the word spooky around Halloween time. I don't know. Let's get spooky. But anyway, what do you think the deal ultimately looks like from Joe Sackick to Devon Taves? What do they agree on? And does it make it all the way to arbitration? I don't know if it'll make it to arbitration simply because I think the Avalanche are going to be willing to pay what the Islanders were unwilling to pay. And I think that's going to be around the $3.75 to $4.25 million range. Uh, the Islanders couldn't afford that. I mean, look... He's not someone you want to trade. Islanders fans are not happy to have lost Taves. But if you're Lou Lamorello for a player that you were likely not going to be able to fit under your cap, it's a pretty good, decent haul to get two second-round draft picks. Granted, you're getting them from the Colorado Avalanche, and unless they reacquire Matt Duchesne, thus bringing the franchise back down to nothing, uh, they are going to be draft picks in the 55 to 61 range or 62 range two seasons in a row. So that's not much of a draft pick. Um, but that's kind of where I see the deal falling. I see the Avalanche giving him a three to four year deal somewhere between 3.75 and 4.25. Uh, maybe they'll get him at three and a half. Who knows? But I think that three, seven, five is a good number for him and is likely where he's going to slot. And it's going to show right off the bat that he is more valuable to Sackick than Ryan Graves is because right off the bat, he would get more money than Ryan Graves who took a 9.5 million over three year deal. So 3.16 per season. Yeah, and just just really, at the you look at the overall picture. That's just so little when it comes to the cap space. Yeah. That to get such a strong defenseman that's hopefully going to play a pivotal role for you at such a good price. I mean, you you can't help but give all the kudos to Joe Sackett. And 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 the thing is, Ryan Graves took three point one six after trading away Zadorov's three point two. And Ian Cole is a free agent next summer, and I assume he won't be back unless he signs like a one or two million dollar deal to be the number six guy. Uh, you know, if the Avalanche want him for another season, but he makes four point one. So once you lose Ian Cole, uh, Devon Taves's money ultimately eats that up. So you're replacing a combination, a combine, a combined, excuse me, seven point three million dollars of. Sidorov and Cole with a combined roughly seven point three million dollars of Graves and Taves. That's a trade-off I'll take any day of the week, uh, which is, again, why I think the Avalanche are, you know, assuming Eric Johnson waves and assuming they can protect Devon Taves. You're the Avalanche. You're hoping that Seattle takes somebody like Giannis Donskoy rather than one of your defensemen. Yeah, absolutely. So, like you said, Sackick's kind of playing uh, chess while everybody else is playing checkers, so make sure to uh, check out Arif's article there on milehighsports.com. Arif, I got a pop quiz for you real quick. Um, assuming Devon Taves sticks with the number 25, he will then, uh, I guess he can't because Logan O'Connor has it, doesn't he? Well, does, is, is that a question? Is Logan O'Connor going to keep it over him? Yeah, who do you think? Who do you think is going to hang on to it? Well, they've both been in the NHL for a couple of years. Devon Taves is older, has a larger role. I think Logan O'Connor is going to do the nice thing and, and say, go ahead and take it. Didn't Logan O'Connor wear 22 at DU or am I, am I 
no, I'm thinking of Connor. I'm thinking of Connor Timmons. Sorry, never mind. You always got to assume too with the younger guys, especially the guys that just came out of the AHL. There's they're a just good chance they're 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 wearing a number that they hate anyway. Exactly. So I would imagine that he's willing to give it up. But what I wanted to ask you is the pop quiz here is aside from Logan O'Connor, there are five other former Avalanche players to wear 25, and not counting anybody that came over from from the Nordiques or anybody that wore it for the Nordiques. But can you name? All five players who once wore 25. Mikhail Grigorenko, uh, Dave Andrichuk, <clears throat> I think. No, not Dave Andrichuk. Uh, Mikhail Grigorenko. Um, it's a tough one. I would have only, uh, honestly, I tried this by myself before, you know, because I was driving home thinking, what can I throw in a pod about number 25 that's kind of fun? And I tried to think about this, and I could only name one. And that one. Mike Keen? There, there's a good one. That's You got one, but that's not the one I was thinking of. So Keen, Grigorenko, there is an obvious one that I'm missing because I remember when Grigorenko got 25, I said, ah, there's... I'm telling you, you're going to beat yourself up about this, but I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Mikhail Grigorenko replaced somebody's 25. Who was that? It, it's an obvious one and it's not coming to me. And as soon as you say it, I'm going to be pissed off that I didn't get it. Max Talbot. Max Talbot. Thank you. Talbo. I, that's, that's the one he replaced. So Talbot, Grigorenko, Mike Keen, and... Uh, you got two to go. Let's save the listeners on me sitting here thinking for the next hour. Um, Recently retired. Uh, traded to St. Louis. Oh, Chris Stewart. That's right. Yes. Chris Stewart wore Chris 25. Stewart. I forgot about that. So that's four. And then the last one, and this is the only one that I could remember. For some reason, the only one you can't remember. Brent Severin. Sean Podin. Sean Podin. Thank you. Brent Severin wore 23, I think, before Hey Duke. Uh Damn, that is a great quiz. See, those are all guys, when you think of the number 25 for the Avalanche, it's one of those numbers where you can kind of picture the players. That, it's kind of like 18, you know, Tange Ward, and you know, Deadmarsh Ward, and Brassard, and, and Stefan Yell. And you can sort of picture the players, and you know they're decent enough names. But in the moment, you're just like, wait, who who was it? And that's kind of how I felt. What's disappointing about all those guys is they all wore number 25 for about two years one of them, Mike King, that or no, Sean Podine wore it for three. Other than that, none of them lasted longer than three years. Sean so. Podine also wore number 25 overnight after winning the Stanley Cup because he didn't take his damn equipment off for 24 <laughs> hours. Yep, but that brings us to a good time to break, take a deep breath, and uh, think about what action we're going to take from the upcoming week since there's so few sports. But week five of football is in the books, so it's time to review the tape. And get ready for week six. There's no better place to get into all the action than with DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. To add to the excitement of week six, DraftKings Sportsbook is bringing back their can't-miss offer. I mean, if you've been listening to the podcast, you already know what this offer is, and you've known about it for the last six weeks. So if you haven't tried DraftKings Sportsbook yet, head to the app right now because... You're missing out simply. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new users the chance to receive a sign-up bonus of up to $1,000, meaning they're just going to give you some free money to bet with. So don't worry if football isn't for you. DraftKings is giving all basketball fans a 200% profit boost. Now, why would they put that in when the season's already over? Obviously, there's no more basketball to bet on. You still got baseball, and of course you got European soccer, which is where I'm making all my money too. But DraftKings is safe reliable and secure making it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience so download the top rated DraftKings sports back sportsbook app now and use promo code mhs when you sign up and get up to one 
thousand dollars. That's code MHS to get a sign up bonus of up to one thousand dollars for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. And you must be twenty one or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. And I'm you know, still waiting for DraftKings to put up those uh, plays for how many games are going to get canceled this week? Because obviously the Broncos and the Patriots game was pushed back a week and the Broncos schedule kind of just went into like this big disarray and three other games, I believe, or two other games are being rescheduled because of COVID-19 positive cases with the Patriots. So once those plays are available, I'm willing to put some money on a game being canceled every week. Why not make some weird money, right? What a disaster going on in the NFL. And the only thing it makes me think about, because I don't care. I, I don't care if the rest of the NFL gets canceled. I not a big fan of it anyway, but it makes me nervous for the NHL. If the NFL, this is why. Yeah, if if the NFL can't put together their season the way they're trying, where teams traveling to other teams and playing in the actual buildings, then I don't see how the NHL can possibly do it outside of a bubble. I mean, it's 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 making me a little bit nervous at this point. And not to mention, this is why the NHL is played indoors, which is a big difference to me too. This is why the NHL is not committing to a start date, is not committing to a format, is not committing to a structure to a schedule to anything like that just like they did during the return to play negotiations and i remember you and i we kind of had like four or five weeks in a row of a podcast going uh they're gonna announce something no really they didn't yes they will no they didn't maybe when is it coming no and then at the last possible moment they made that announcement and they got it right and that's kind of what they want to do again i'm not saying they're going to get it right because who the hell knows how you get it right this time around but that's exactly why the NHL has not committed because what the NFL is doing, and we, we said this during the playoffs back in August as well. We said the NHL is going to keep a close eye on the NFL and on the MLB. And if things go smoothly, if nothing weird happens, then that'll give them the, the format and it'll give them sort of a head start and a sneak peek of what they can do. Well, since it's going the way it's going, it's given the NHL a sneak peek of what it shouldn't do. And that's why it's going to be a while before we hear about how the NHL is going to proceed. Well, it's got me shaking in my little space boots, Arif, because I don't know how the hell we're supposed to do off-season podcasts for the next three months, because allegedly it's still three months away, and that's a long time to just talk about God knows what twice a week. Yep, so let's go ahead and pretend today is July 15. Uh, That brings us to August, September, October 15, which brings us to what will be this year, January 15. So yeah, it's basically right now July 15, and we have an entire off-season ahead of us. Uh, everybody's favorite hockey month, August, which is the dead month for everybody except for uh, Valerie Nachushkin's league minimum contract. Uh, it's going to be a long, long summer. God bless your souls for sticking with us for this long. Uh, the next three months are going to be quite the ride until we know what's happening. Well, if today's July 15, then that happens to be my birthday. So let's get on with the podcast because that's my only birthday wish here. And we got to talk about what's coming next. I mean, we kind of touched on it from the NHL standpoint, but let's get into the Avalanche. Is there more action to be had? I mean, Elliot Friedman recently came out and said that the Avs inquired on Mackenzie Weger from Florida right before the Taves trade. So um, are they still looking to get into another deal, or do you think uh, this might be it for them right now? So it just depends on what they think of Ian Cole. I 
this play, this playoffs, this last playoff series against Dallas kind of soured me on Ian Cole and Nikita Zadorov because neither one of them was able to step into a top four role and do it properly, which is why the Avalanche had to call upon Connor Timmins, who did a better job than both those guys. Uh, Ian Cole is a great defenseman. He's a great depth guy to have. But if you can swing a trade involving Cole to bring in somebody like Mackenzie Weger, then why not? Cole's making $4 million. Uh, surely Weger will take less than that. But granted, at the same time, why in the heck would Florida take an old Ian Cole when they have a young guy like Weger who they probably are looking to trade because they don't want to pay him $4 million. So why would they take a $4 million Ian Cole? You still have Tyson Jost, who's a trade chip. Granted, Joe Sackick has said he's going to re-sign him. I, I'm starting to believe more and more that Tyson Jost will be back with the Avalanche. Um, but if you want to use him as a trade chip, you can. And you can bring in somebody like Uyghur and just completely redo the bottom two defensemen being Taves and Uyghur, uh, even if Taves plays up in the lineup. Um, so that would be cool if the Avalanche went out and got him. I'm not going to hold my breath on it. I think they're going to keep Ian Cole until the end of his contract this year. Uh, in regards to any more moves, uh, for starters... Tyson Jost needs a new contract. Devon Taves needs a new contract. The Avalanche have about $6.7 million in cap space. Let's go ahead and throw 700 k of that money towards Logan O'Connor because whether he's a 12th, 13th, or 14th forward, I think he will be on the starting lineup. That leaves the Avalanche with a roster of 20. So you have six defensemen and 12 forwards and two goaltenders with $6 million left in cap space. Let's give 3.75 to Devon Taves. That leaves 2.25. Let's give 1.5 to Sir Tyson Jost. That leaves just under a million and just enough to add one more player. So right off the bat, the Avalanche are tight. Uh, this is why I think they should get rid of Tyson Jost is because rather than giving Tyson Jost 1.5, let's go ahead and give two depth guys league minimum or 800K. And considering Matt Nieto just took a $700,000 contract with the San Jose Sharks, there are some players out there to be had at that price, or the Avalanche are going to look at Tyson Jost and say, if you want to play here, you're taking less than a million. Right, and that's what's tough, is the players that are out there at that price are the Matt Nieto-level players. I don't think Tyson Jost... Which is what they need at this point. I mean, Matt Nieto is the guy that they either need to replace or or bring somebody back to play on that line, because your third line ultimately is Comfort, Nichushkin, and Donskoy. That's been solidified. And that's what I'm getting into here is I think Jost steps up and fulfills that role because I think he's got the same skill set as as Matt Nieto, if not a little bit more offensive and, and offensively skilled. He doesn't have the play like there's no tomorrow mentality that Matt Nieto kind of had, but considering Jost's last performances right after the trade deadline, and I think he did pretty well during the playoffs, I think Joe wants to see what he can do and, and maybe a little bit bigger role, a little bit more trusted. Obviously, it's going to be more of a fourth-line role like Matt Nieto, but if he plays like Tyson Jost has in his most recent, I, I guess, outings, um, I think he's definitely somebody they want to consider keeping around, but I think they're going to give him a trial period. I think Joe Sackick's done for right now. They're going to let Joe Sackick, they're going to let Ian Cole play out and see from there. They're going to tweak accordingly to what the team might need, whether it's a goalie, whether it's uh, add, shoring up the defense, or if they do need to add some more depth to the forwards. I think they're going to play it by ear. I just think they need to add another depth defenseman, another league minimum contract type of defenseman, uh, because you had Barbario and Kanaten where you're number seven and you're number eight, and you need to replace those guys. And I certainly believe Dennis Gilbert eats up one of those spots. I think Dennis Gilbert is a more than capable NHLer and is going to be, let's say, your number seven and or your number eight defenseman. But you need to add another guy. So who are you going to sign? And uh, 
how is it going to fit into the equation? Because you do need another body there who can step in if or when there's injuries. And uh, the Avalanche seem to have less bodies now than they did in the playoffs. And that's something that I find hard to believe that Sackick's going to going to go into the next season with is the fact that, you know, he's he's gotten rid of Zadorov, He's brought in Taves. He's gotten rid of Barbario. He's brought in Gilbert. But you're still missing a body there, and that was that Kevin cannot embody. And I just find it hard to believe that Sackick's going to have less NHL-ready bodies than he did last year, considering the injuries. But granted, again, it's a seven or eight hundred thousand dollar defenseman. He's likely going to start in the minors, um, or he's going to be on the bench, and Dennis Gilbert's going to start in the minors. So it's not something that's going to eat up cap space unless he's called up. Uh, and it may be somebody that you sign to a two-way deal. But the Avalanche probably will make those kinds of minor moves. And to me, it sounds like you're trying to take away ice time from Connor Timmins and Bo Byram. Now, are you suddenly maybe backpedaling a little on, on their readiness to jump into the NHL lineup? No, but what I don't want us to do, uh, what I don't want us to get to, to have a conversation about is about Connor Timmins being your number seven defenseman who is not playing on either team. Assuming the AHL gets going and assuming the NHL gets going as well, I would much rather Connor Timmins is your number nine option because if you're going to roll with eight defensemen, which I think Bednar is more of a 14 forward, seven defense kind of guy. But if you're going to roll with eight defensemen, I'd like the two guys to be sitting on the bench to be two guys that are rather NHL veterans or someone that it doesn't hurt as much to have them sitting on the bench, kind of like Dennis Gilbert, kind of like Barbario, Connaughton. And, you know, if let's say, God forbid, Sam Gerrard gets injured, rather than pulling number seven guy right off the right out of the press box, you can call somebody up. I mean, they did it with Barbario. He was the number seven guy all season. Whenever there was an injury, they just skipped right over him and called up Callie Rosen, or they just skipped right over him and called up Connor Timmins. So that's kind of the idea that I have right now is you want those bodies in the locker room that are going to be able to play the number seven, number eight role and do it professionally like Barbario did. Uh, without putting Timmins in that position and, you know, end up having him do what Vladislav Kamenev did these last two years, and it's nothing and no development. Or even what unfortunately happened to him in these last playoffs, Connor Timmins, that is, where he gets wrecked and, you know, yeah, got geez. a little bit shook up. So you hate to throw That's, him to yeah, the floor. We, we, don't, even know if, too we don't even know if he's ready. We don't even know what kind mm-hmm. of injury he had, if it's a concussion right. issue, if it's a nagging issue. Uh there's a lot of questions still to be answered about his play. Right. So I don't really have too much else from the Avalanche standpoint. What I did want to do now, though, is look around the NHL and just kind of get your assessment on how other teams have handled free agency periods so far. I, I, are there any teams out there that stand out, good or bad, that you'd like to kind of bring up and, um, you know, bring bring to the spotlight? Okay. We need to have a conversation about Vegas. And I'm going to start this up with my hot take of the week, something that I did two weeks ago, but I didn't do last episode because I forgot because this is just some random segment I'm going to throw hey, in. it's still the same week. It's still the same yeah, week as true. the last episode. I'm going to throw this into episodes whenever I could think of one. My hot take of the week is that Vegas doesn't know that they are a team forever. Now, let me explain. I think that Bill Foley thinks and that Kelly McCrimmon thinks that once you win the Stanley Cup, you beat the game and it's over. Because Vegas keeps doing these moves and making these moves where they're trading away all of those young prospects they create they, that they acquired in their first draft and all of those many draft picks and all of these young players. And they traded, I think, 
27 draft picks for Thomas Tatar? I, I don't remember. And then they took Tatar and they packaged him with one of their best young uh, prospects in Nick Suzuki, traded him to the Montreal Canadiens for Max Pacioretty, signed him to a long-term deal. Then they went out and took Paul Stastny in free agency, signed him to a long-term deal. Then they went out and traded for Mark Stone, also you know kicking 30 years old, signed him to a long-term deal. Now they've gone out and signed Alex Petrangelo to a seven-year deal at $8.8 million per year. Very bonus-heavy uh bonus money heavy meaning that the contract is ultimately buyout proof except for the last season where it's a full 8.8 million dollar salary which to me says Petrangelo is going to play for six years and you're going to buy him out year seven because he's going to be 37 years old and he's not going to be worth 8.8 they have the Marc-Andre Fleury thing going on with Robin Leonard they had to trade Nate Schmidt who they didn't have to trade Nate Schmidt they went out and traded Nate Schmidt who was one of their biggest you know, locker room personalities and one of their best players on the team. Almost um, for free. And wasn't he a Las Vegas native too? So he had that kind of hometown. No, no, that was appeal. that was that was Derek Engelin, but but uh, Nate Schmidt quickly became uh, a fan favorite there, just like Marc Andre Fleury. And look what they've done to both those guys now. Jonathan Marchsol, Max Pacioretty, their names were in were in trade talks all summer long or all off season long these last few weeks because everybody knew they were going after Petrangelo. And they were not too happy about it. According to Elliot Friedman, before they went out and got Petrangelo, they inquired about Steven Stamkos. According to Elliot Friedman, before they went out and signed Petrangelo, excuse me, they inquired about Taylor Hall as a UFA. I think that Vegas thinks that once you win the Stanley Cup, it's over. I don't think they realize that they're setting themselves up for two things. Number one, they're setting themselves up to be the next San Jose Sharks, meaning the San Jose Sharks were a great team for so many years and a contender for so many years. And then last year hit and Brent Burns and Logan Couture and Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe on his second stint and Eric Carlson and Martin Jones and all of these guys are old and signed to long-term deals. And Vegas is going up that road while at the same time developing a reputation in three short years as a team that is not loyal to its best players. And that's a problem for them too. So my hot take of the week is Bill Foley, the owner of the Vegas Golden Knights, thinks that once he wins the Stanley Cup, it's over. And I think he needs to realize real quickly that he's got to build for the future because this team is going down a very, very wrong path. And don't get it mistaken. Don't get it twisted. This is going to be a good team for the next two or three, four years. This is going to be a team that's going to challenge the Avalanche for the next two, three, four years. And this is going to be a team that arguably is in a better position than the Avalanche. That's a debate to be had. But in three, four, five, six years when the Avalanche are still good, Vegas is going to be old and they're going to get old real quick. Maybe with the way that all Stanley Cup champions have been celebrating in recent years, uh, you win the Stanley Cup, and it's basically over for you for a while because you, your t- whole team drinks itself into oblivion for an entire offseason. And, and imagine that in Vegas. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of my thought process. But it, it's it's kind of crazy to see how you know nobody expected them to be good when they were a brand-new team. They came out, and that now looking back, that, that might be the worst thing for them at this point was the fact that they yeah. were successful because now they got a scratch and claw to stay up there, and they're jeopardizing their future by doing so. It built these expectations where when they lost that first round series to San Jose, granted, they shouldn't have lost that first round series. Cody Eakin got a five minute major for uh, Joe Pavelski tripping over Paul Stastny's stick or whatever it was, that funky play that ended up. Granted, if you're Vegas, you still gave up four power play goals in a five minute stretch. That's that's inexcusable. Uh, You still had a three to nothing lead and blew it. That's inexcusable. But on top of that, they come out this year. 
They make it to the third round, and then they get completely destroyed by Dallas. And Bill Foley, the owner, is going out there saying, this is ridiculous, this is outrageous. And I'm like, you've been to the third round twice over the last three years, and you went to the Stanley Cup final in your first season. We're sitting here covering the avalanche going, when are they going to make it back to the third round? They haven't been there since the Red Wings mopped them in 2002. So the expectations have just been at this level that is just inconceivable and it's too high where what the hell is going to happen once he wins the Stanley Cup? He's going to come out the next season and say, this is outrageous. We need to do it again. That segues me nicely into what I wanted to do next, which is the social media moment of the week. But before we get into that, um, like you said, the Avalanche have struggled for so long to even be relevant. I want to ask you if you, because I did a little bit of research, couldn't find it anywhere. Have you ever heard what Nathan McKinnon's favorite team growing up was. I have not. He claims that it's the Avalanche, but I find that very hard to be true considering how terrible they were throughout his youth, right? And once Sidney Crosby gets to the NHL, you got to assume he jumps right on that Pittsburgh bandwagon. But that brings me to the social media moment of the week, and that is the picture that Nathan McKinnon posted of those brand-new blue gloves. And I wanted to blue gloves. What I was curious about, though, was his um, his caption on it, right? He has new colors crazy, and then the huffy, maybe like he's he's throwing a fit face. I'm new curious, is he trying to say crazy. that he doesn't like those Nordique blues? No, I think it was uh, him saying, look out, look how beautiful these things are. And you just said the magic word, Nordique blue. The Avalanche's 25th season is coming up, and it's looking more and more like they got something special in store. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, I think it's obvious uh, a Nordique styled thing. I just wanted to make sure he wasn't, you know, using that emoji to, to you know, pout about it because no, those are some pretty sweet, pretty sweet blues. Young Nate is—he's uh, a little gangsta, and uh, that emoji right there says, "I love it." Uh, and I call him Young Nate because apparently he's on Periscope or Twitch or whatever the hell that gaming one is. I, I, I don't <laughs> remember. Nate. And his name is literally, his screen name is Y-U-N-G-G-N-A-T-E. Young without the O. Y-U-N-G-G-N-A-T-E. Young Nate. Gotta love it. Yep. New Cull is crazy is what he's trying to say. New Cull is crazy. Gotta love Nathan <laughs> McKinnon. Um, but yeah, that would be really special. I would absolutely love to see those colors. I would love to see the Avalanche wear a Nordiques jersey. They'll likely play the Carolina Hurricanes, who love to wear their Hartford Whalers jersey, and just have this light blue versus light green classic of an 80s matchup. Or, uh, you know, the Vegas recently dropped those new gold jerseys. I want to see those golds versus Nordique blue. Let's quit the uh, dark versus white. Let's bring in some color clashes Amen. like the NFL and the NBA. I'll, right? I'll, I'll, never, I'll never forget the 2014 Winter Classic at the Big House, Toronto versus Detroit. It was the most spectacular, most beautiful thing you could see on the ice. You have this snow globe at the big house in an arbor, and it was a red Red Wings jersey versus a blue Maple Leafs jersey, and it just looked perfect. I mean, if any one of those teams decided to go out and wear a white jersey, like whatever the hell the Avalanche wore against the Red Wings, with the snowstorm that was going on, because it wasn't cotton like we had to have at Coors Field, with the snowstorm that was going on, you wouldn't have been able to see that jersey. The blue versus the red was just beautiful on the ice, and I wish more teams would do color on color. Yeah, you just got to be observant of our colorblind friends out there because I remember when the NFL did the color rush and it was the Jets versus the Bills, a green versus red. I have multiple friends who are green-red colorblind and couldn't couldn't tell the difference. Um, But, yeah, I wanted to ask you, I asked this question of my co-host on the live show, the hockey show on Mile High Sports on Saturdays. Make sure to catch it live. Ryan Bolding. And I want to ask you, what's your favorite 
Avs sweater of all time? I mean, there's been so many. There's obviously the classic, but there, there's been a handful. What would you say is your top one? So the burgundy color is perhaps one of my favorite colors. I love that the Avalanche have that color because... Whether it's because since I've been a child, I've always connected that color with the hockey team that I loved growing up or whatever it is, I've always loved that burgundy. It's why I drive a Silverado, that color. It's why I always, you know, buy that color shirts and the sweater you're wearing right now, burgundy. I have pants that match it perfectly. Same exact color. I wear them to the Pepsi Center all the time and uh, people laugh at me. It's funny. Um <laughs> Basically, what I'm trying to get is that burgundy color is beautiful. And because of that, my favorite Avalanche jersey is that full burgundy one that says Colorado going diagonally across the front. And I always, when I picture that jersey, I picture a 2003-2004 Peter Forsberg that put up 160 points in about 115 games. And I love that jersey. I love that time in the Avalanche's history. I can see the 37 Drury. I can see the 33 Wah on that jersey. I love it. I absolutely missed that thing, and I wish they would wear it again. That's a good answer. I like that. Mine's kind of lame. I got to stick with just the plain original burgundy. That was my first jersey. That was my first hockey jersey ever, so that one just has a special place in my heart, and I love it. I mean, it's a classic design, classic colors, and I'm with you. Uh, burgundy's got to be one of the sweetest colors out. And, and I got to say, I am... Nothing made me happier with this organization as as much as it's such a small little stupid thing than the day in 2017-18 where they not only left those apron jerseys, but they went back to that classic design. I know it looks a little bit different. The mountain stripes are gray or silver and they're not the black and white and it looks a little bit different, but the new jersey has sort of reinvigorated this franchise and the Avalanche have made the playoffs every year since. They only missed it once with that mountain stripe jersey back in 2007 and Every time I think of the Avalanche's like dead era, I think of that apron jersey. The Reebok Jinx, and they we'll grew, call it. The Reebok Jinx, thank you. And then they grew out of it into those Adidas redesigned and, and reinvented form of the classic jersey. And suddenly they're this big shot contender again. It's it's really fascinating. But I've always loved that mountain stripe jersey. And I, I was so happy when they brought it back in 2017-18. Well, let's get to the Mile High Sports three stars of the week. I know we already had three stars this week, but we've got room to do another three stars this week. So technically there were six stars this week, but this is this week's three. Presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top rated sportsbook app. Star number three. That's former Avalanche Ryan O'Reilly for this week getting named the captain of the St. Louis Blues. No surprise, just good to see former Avalanche players doing their thing out there. Timeout, did that really happen? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, I, I saw it, unless it was one of those fake accounts that got me. No, I think it's one of those things where everybody's talking about it happening, because I tweeted about it too, and I said, how quick until the... St. Louis Blues named Ryan O'Reilly captain. You know, the funny thing is we don't even have to edit this out because he is going to be named captain before uh but before he uh but before the season starts. Um but I don't think it's been named yet. Let's see, let's look at let's let's pull this up live. I'm you know what? We're only news articles. We're only forty nine minutes in, so it's okay. Our listeners are gonna have to well, listen to it. Son us of a bitch, you're right. He was Yes, he was named not named captain, captain yet. yet, but it is coming. Everybody knows it's coming. Let's go ahead and keep this entire segment in for two reasons. Number one, kind of makes you look funny. And I'm always down for that. Number two, <laughs> Ryan O'Reilly earns the respect that he gets the respect that he deserves. He is going to be the captain. I'm excited for him. He's a former Conn Smythe Trophy winner, Stanley Cup champion, my boy, my guy. Uh, we once traded him for a defenseman. 
that we turned into Brandon Saad. So that was cool. But shout out Ryan O'Reilly. He will be the captain before next season starts. Just hasn't happened yet. Good thing this is your third star, not your first. Yeah, I mean, I have no problem pulling the curtain back, but you're insinuating that we edit our other podcasts, which I don't know why you would make that no, assumption. No, we, we never we never. But Ryan O'Reilly's got a special place in my heart um, just because I used to see him out at the bars a lot. Way before I started doing the Avalanche coverage and I was just another fan out there, just another big hockey guy, I would see him out at the bars and he'd always be friendly and, uh, you know, let me hang out with him here and there. So Screw it. Let me, let me tell you a cool story about Ryan O'Reilly since we're still early on in this podcast. His seventh career game was at the Joe Louis Arena, and it was the first. It was the second game that I ever went to. Uh, I I didn't go to my first hockey game until late 2008, which is crazy considering I've been a diehard Avalanche guy since 96, 97, since I was three or four years old, literally. So it was my second game. I went to the Joe Louis Arena, Avalanche Red Wings. It was the day Matt Duchesne scored his first career goal. And Ryan O'Reilly had two assists. The Avalanche came back from down 2 nothing in the third period to beat the Red Wings in overtime. And Ryan O'Reilly, uh, that was the game that cemented his first season with the Avs. And Joe Sackick or Greg Sherman or Joe Sacco, whoever the hell it was at the time, said, we're going to keep him on the team. But over the years, I got really close with Ryan O'Reilly in a very unique way. And that's because I once went to a game at the Bell Center in Montreal two years later. And I was walking up to my seat wearing this beautiful apron jersey, the dead era jersey of the Avalanche, the Reebok Jenks with number 90 on the back. And this lady comes running behind me and taps me on the shoulder and goes, I love Ryan O'Reilly. I have his jersey too. What do you like about him? And I just sit there and start, you know, sucking off my favorite player for the last <laughs> 10 minutes talking about how much I love Ryan O'Reilly and she goes oh it looks like he autographed your jersey and I said yeah I went out to Denver this year my first time going out to Denver and he was ha- nice enough to sign this jersey for me and I go you should go out to Denver too he would probably sign yours too he's such a nice guy and she smiles and smirks and goes well I don't think I need to do that to have him sign my jersey because I'm his mother And I was like, whoa, so that was really cool. And then I was introduced to his father. I ran into them at games all across the country. I went to a game in Tampa Bay months later and saw them. I went to a game in Columbus months later and saw them. And when we went to that game in Columbus, his father and his mother actually got us down into the the basement level of the Nationwide Arena. And we got to meet the Avalanche players and do all these cool things. I had my young cousins with me and they were Avalanche fans. And they got to meet all these NHLers and Jerome McGinley. Just because Ryan O'Reilly has the coolest parents and is just the coolest guy with with this really nice family. Uh, Here we are five years later, his mother, Bonnie O'Reilly, who we all know is the mother that raised him, his brother, Cal, and all the foster children they took in. Uh, Just a great family. She's one of my Facebook friends and she's always reaching out and, you know, seeing how I'm doing in Denver. She's awesome. So there's a cool story about Ryan O'Reilly and his beautiful mother and the wonderful family he comes from. Just in case you guys don't miss him. Maybe this will help you miss him a little bit. Well, while we're at it, just killing time since, you know, we had a shorter podcast planned here. I wanted to tell, I've always wanted to tell my story of my first NHL game ever, just because it was so freaking awesome. You could tell why I became obsessed. It was in 1995 at Old McNichols Arena, and the Avalanche beat down the San Jose Sharks 12 to 2. No way. You went to that game? 12. I was at that game. No that was way. my first NHL game ever. So I'm seeing hats flying around the ice. I'm seeing, you know, 12 goals. I'm seeing the entire crowd 
uh, talk smack to Chris Tariri, who was, I, I think, uh, the backup at that point in relief. Poor guy had to get shelled, too. And I'm just like, this is the best sport I've ever been a part of. Of course, I was only like five or six at the time. But from what I, the knowledge I had seen on sports, there wasn't anything better than that. So I think we both have two pretty cool first NHL game stories. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. I always remember that game because that's one of the Avalanche's like trivia questions of when's the first time or the only time they've scored 12 goals in a game. And I always knew it was against San Jose and it was in 95. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, I just hate that we're wasting a podcast on October 15 by killing time with the kind of information that we're going to need in November and December when we're podcasting, talking about literally nothing but this stuff. Here we are 10 minutes into the three star segment. We're still on star number three and it was somebody that was given a star for something that hasn't even (laughs) happened yet. (laughs) And here we are 10 (laughs) minutes later, still talking about it. Well, let's get to star number two. And I fact checked this one. I know this one's. Are you sure? Okay. Joe Thornton. Going over to play in Switzerland. He's playing for free. He's playing to just go for the love of the game. Uh, right? I mean, I don't, who knows if he's even going to get picked up by anybody um, or, you know, what the future holds for him. But he just wants to get back out on the ice. You know, it's been a while for him. And, uh, you know, San Jose Sharks didn't exactly make it to the playoffs. So it's been a longer while for him than anybody else. He just wants to get back out and play because he loves the game. At that age, it's so magnificent to see that he still has that kind of desire to be great and to play the game because younger people have lost it much earlier than him. So it's just cool to see that fire in his belly still. Yeah, and he plays for HC DeVos, Hockey Club DeVos, and he played for them in the 2005 lockout and again in the 2012 lockout. And uh, I know their, their official team Twitter posted a statistic today that he's played, I believe, 78 games with that club which is kind of crazy to think Joe Thornton, this guy that's been in the NHL for so long and played over a thousand games has still found a way during the lockouts to play 78 games for one team in Switzerland. And he's put up 90 points. So shout out to Joe. And I just love that he's doing it for free. Um, I can't, I can't see a situation or a scenario where he doesn't sign somewhere. Maybe it's Toronto. Like a lot of people have been talking about since Chris Johnston kind of dropped that bomb on the Steve Dangle podcast. Maybe he goes back to San Jose like Patrick Marlowe did. Regardless, no matter what it is, I think he'll be back. But for now, he's in Switzerland having a good time. I think you want to see him in San Jose just to reunite him with yeah. Marlo and just so the end of both of their careers can end the way it's supposed to. You'd think Toronto would learn from the Patrick Marlowe experiment not to bring on some old guy just because he's a good player and has a good legacy. He's not automatically going to fit into your young lineup and, and produce. But, yeah, wish nothing but the best for Joe, and he's just a treat to watch, isn't he? Yeah, he is, and I mean – that's that's a great point about Toronto, but at the same time, if you're bringing in Joe Thornton, you're not bringing him in for the six point three million dollars that Marlowe made for three years because Lou Lamorello and Mike Babcock had a total hard on for him at thirty six years old or thirty five years old. Uh, you're gonna bring in Joe Thornton at a million dollars, probably less than that. Uh, granted, you already have Jason Spezza playing that old guy making Lee minimum role that suddenly has become a thing. So who knows? Maybe he'll just go back to San Jose and call it a day there. Before we get any more phallic references out of you, Arif? Let's get to star number one, <laughs> and that is our good friend. We're going to miss him, Matt Nieto, heading back to San Jose. You, you got to love the fact that he's going back to San Jose, somewhere he uh, loves to be, obviously, and somewhere that loves him. So um, I was w- curious what he was, where he was going to actually land, if anywhere, and I'm just happy that he lands somewhere that he wants to be. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm bummed for him that he's going to play for league minimum because – 
you know, the entire season we talked about how Nieto is likely not going to come back to the Avs because he's going to be expecting a raise on the 1.8 million, I want to say, that he was making. And considering Matt Calvert got 2.85 million over three years from the Avs, uh, you could see a scenario where in a normal world before COVID, Matt Nieto could have signed like a three-year, $7.5 million deal somewhere. Uh, he's still producing. He's still a great penalty killer. He's still in his 20s. He's a young player. Uh, so it's unfortunate for him that COVID happened because it ultimately eliminated the middle class of the NHL player. You either are Petrangelo or you're making 700K. That's kind of the way it's gone this offseason. Um, I'm happy for him that he's back in San Jose. Little fun fact, I love that the Sharks signed Patrick Marlowe and Matt Nieto each for $700,000 deals, and their Twitter was just having a blast with it. They had this one picture of Marlowe wearing a Pittsburgh Penguins jersey, which is funny because I forgot he played there. And they say our Photoshop team is at you know is, is here on full force, and they'll sort of swipe over the Pittsburgh photo and slowly erase it to show Marlow in a Sharks jersey. And then five minutes later, they did the same thing with Matt Nieto. They said, "Here's Matt Nieto in Avalanche jersey. Let's get our Photoshop team to work." And they'll swipe over it, and it'll be him in a Sharks jersey. Obviously, none of them are photoshopped. They're pictures of Marlow and Nieto in Sharks jerseys. <laughs> uh, but that was just really cool to see. Hey, if they're gonna be bad, why not relive the past and have some fun doing it, right? Yep. Yeah, Port, why not? The Avalanche did it for a while, and they brought back Stefan Yell and all these other guys and Tangay, and eventually, for some reason, I think Matt Duchesne is going to come back. It's going to be really weird, but uh, yeah, <laughs> every team does it. Yeah, hopefully Matt Duchesne doesn't come back as a coach because that was weird to see Patrick Waugh come back as a coach and suddenly he's got a whole <laughs> different mask on, I guess. But yeah, I'll never forget the look Matt Nieto had uh, with his, on his first day with the Avalanche, just kind of like, oh, man, I just left a good team. And got I, stolen yeah. away, got kidnapped by this terrible 48-point team. What am I doing here? Somebody get me out. So I think I mentioned uh, on a recent podcast that it was just nice to see him get to move forward with the evolution of the Avalanche and experience some of the success before he got to leave. Yeah, Matt Nieto, Patrick Nemeth, Mark Barbario, uh, three of the waiver wire pickups that the Avalanche made that ended up working, that ended up leading to... Uh, longer careers in Denver and for Nemeth's sake he got a nice deal out of it from Detroit making over two million uh Nieto's situation is unfortunate he would probably be making more if it wasn't for the uh coronavirus pandemic and the shutdowns and the flat cap Mark Barbario obviously signed overseas I would imagine he might still be in the NHL if it wasn't for what's going on um so yeah Matt Nieto to me is, is he signifies that transition from this team was terrible wearing an apron jersey to this team suddenly became good. Those last few years for a player that retires from the NHL and goes plays overseas and whether it's in Switzerland, um, you know, usually not the KHL, usually a lower league than that. Those just have to be the most peaceful years of their career. You know, you don't have to try too hard. You're already one of the better players in the league and you're on the tail end of your career. You're just, you're, your role now is to just enjoy life, drink beers and, and kind of see the new cities that you're traveling into. That's got to be awesome. I'm jealous of Bar Barbario getting to do that. You know, we, John Mitchell ended his career that way. Yeah, and I think it's it's really fascinating that we always forget when we talk about oh, the Austrian league and oh, the German league and oh, the Swiss league and... These are all very, very beautiful countries in Europe. Yeah. These are all places that a lot of people would love to live making $900,000 or a million dollars to uproot your family and go live in Europe for a year. Why the hell not? Like it's, it just seems like a really cool thing that NHLers get to do. And, you know, Joe Thornton is probably going to do it at the end of his career in Switzerland. 
um, before eventually making a home back in North America or even saying, screw it, let's just stay here. Yep, and that brings us to the end of the docket. So let's get your final thoughts, Era, for the uh, week. And probably, um, you know, we'll be back next week to podcast, but who knows what day exactly. Who knows what day and who knows what we'll have to talk about. Uh, but like we said, the Devon Taves is still something to look forward to because October 31st is the arbitration date, assuming it gets that far. Tyson Jose is still an RFA, still not under contract. Joe Sackick did tell us in his press conference the other day that he's very much okay with Adam Werner being the third string goalie. I don't buy it. I think the Avalanche are going to add a veteran guy. And considering Aaron Dell just went for $800,000 to Toronto, I am still waiting for that Jimmy Howard <laughs> signing so that I could tell everybody, including you. I told us so. I told you so. I told us so. <laughs> oh, that's a good place to end it then. Um, obviously, follow us. Interact with us on Twitter. We're always available and open to talk. Um, at Run Right Arif, at JJ of the Year. And before you close it off, I just want to say Happy Thanksgiving to all of our Canadian listeners. I was looking at the statistics earlier today, and I do know we have quite the following in Canada. So Happy Thanksgiving, my fellow Canadians, and I'll let you end it here. Yeah, shoot out to you. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. If you made it this far, bless your pretty little heart. Hockey is for everyone, and we at you.